0: Teaching is our passion. We at the Wall Street Skinny are proud to announce that we've joined the advisory board for the iConnections Funds for Teachers initiative, focused on supporting the Ron Clark Academy and its pioneering teaching methods. Through Funds for Teachers, iConnections is dedicated to empowering educators nationwide by providing access to RCA's professional development opportunities. Events are being organized in major cities throughout the year to fundraise and support this incredibly important cause. All proceeds from these events will be directly donated to the Ron Clark Academy, specifically to financially aid teachers so they can participate in RCA's groundbreaking training programs. Please click on the link in our show notes to register for an event in the city nearest you. This is The Wall Street Skinny, a podcast devoted to exploring the financial services industry and making the world of Wall Street accessible to everyone. Hey guys, welcome back to The Wall Street Skinny. I'm Jen. I'm Kristen. And for those of you who are first-time listeners, welcome. I know we've got a lot of new faces on our social media, which is amazing. We are two lifelong friends with a combined 25 years of working and teaching on Wall Street, and we are on a mission to demystify the world of finance and uh, give you the skinny <laughs> <hence> the
1: name <laughs> on that.
0: some of the most elite, high-paying, and secretive jobs out there. And today we are so excited to bring back by popular demand our gracious experts from Go By Side to talk about private equity and hedge fund recruiting. We know that you guys are desperate for more information about these prestigious careers and how to break in. So here's your chance. <laughs> and this is yeah. part 2 of a multi-part series. So if you haven't listened to episode 32, Go By Side, which is where our two speakers work, is an executive search firm, aka a headhunting firm. They specialize in placing candidates in roles in private equity, hedge funds, and a bunch of other kind of investment advisory services. And their platform is disrupting the traditional search firm model by empowering candidates to learn about the opportunity set and chart their own path, rather than Mm -hmm. being at the whim of these gatekeepers in this black box process that it's been for so many years traditionally. And in our first mm-hmm. episode, we talked about the mind-boggling and totally insane private equity on-cycle recruiting process. I mean, these days, but, people, like, yeah. we have like joked about this. It feels like it starts in infancy. Okay. Today, we're going to touch on off-cycle recruiting for both private equity and hedge funds, specifically for equity long-short hedge funds, which is, when most people think about hedge funds, I think that's what they think most hedge funds are. Like, we well, can short
1: stuff out of... Yeah, yeah, especially people who are coming out of investment banking. To me, right. because I've been in banking and then I've recruited for this one very particular type of role, the only role that they're going to like, for the most part, put me forth for. I thought that was... All there was, and it's like, oh wait, no, no, no. Real? There's a gazillion yeah. different strategies. Well, most anyway, the biggest so, strategies are
0: not equity long short.
1: Fund. Yeah. Well, I mean, short especially long. now it's getting more quant, but like, yeah, I mean, it's crazy how there's the whole world's out there. But for a lot of people in investment banking, meaning IBD, eligible proper, up like IBD property advisory
0: yeah. side of an investment bank.
1: That's what your skill set sets you up for is usually mm-hmm. a, being a research analyst at a equity long short fund. And there are some other types of strategies that you might be qualified for, but that is the biggest one.
0: Yeah, exactly. So what we're going to touch on today is the recruiting process for those two populations. And we're also going to be answering specific questions about how to identify what opportunities are right for you, like Kristen said, based Mm -hmm. on your background, based on what interests you and what's going to set you
1: up for success in the long term. And for the record, guys, by the way, if you are someone who's interested more in sales and trading, and you are interested in like a macro fund or whatever, we actually have a really amazing guest lined up for 2024. So hang tight if this is not what you're interested in. But for those of you who are on the IBD path, sinking private equity, this is probably something that has crossed your mind. So that's, and again, again the, the recruiting
0: here. process is something you'll need to know about regardless of the exit mm-hmm. opportunity that you're interested in. You could be interested yeah. in going to work for a relative value hedge fund or some very niche asset management firm. Chances are you're going to be engaging a recruiter at some point in that process. So understanding yeah. how this process works is critical and universally yeah. applicable. So we're going to be talking about the interview and the offer process, because we haven't talked about Mm. what actually happens with these offers. We're going to be answering a huge question that we've gotten from a ton of our international listeners, which is, what do I need to know about working for one of these firms if I'm not a U.S. citizen? I mean, Kristen, we learned so much having no Mm. clue about those issues. So prepare to have your mind blown, even if you think (laughs) this isn't something that applies to you, because it may very well impact some of the opportunities out there that you're considering even if you are a US citizen. We're really excited for today's conversation. I think it's gonna be really exciting for you guys to listen to. Um, But first, Kristen, how are you doing? Although actually wait, (laughs) before you answer that, I already know how you're doing because I've been talking to you nonstop since about 11 p.m. last night when in between me weirdly watching videos on TikTok of giant waves. Again, I don't Mm. know what the algorithm is feeding me. At least it's not trying to radicalize me. It's just like, look at
1: this big boat. Oh, you know why? (laughs) Actually, probably because we follow Go Surf Basis and he does a bunch of surfing stuff. Maybe you like clicked on it and then now it's like, ooh, she must be interested in waves and surfing.
0: Oh, interesting. But so Kristen and I were up late last night having the most heated debate about when we recorded this interview with Kate and Cam that we're going to press play on here in just a second. Kristen talked about her experience interviewing at a hedge fund, and she was like, I was interviewing at SAC. And mm-hmm. I called her afterwards and I was like, we need you to edit this because I covered that firm. And I've watched dozens of interviews on CNBC and Bloomberg TV talking about SAC, which was the hedge fund founded by billionaire Steve Cohen, which is now rebranded. It's the artist formerly mm-hmm. known as SAC. It's now 0.72. It's one of the biggest multi-strat hedge funds out there. I think they have something like $34 billion in assets under management or something like that. Yeah but you were talking about your experience interviewing and you called them SAC. And I was like, never once in my life have I heard it referred to as SAC, like SAC capital yeah. versus SAC capital. Like it just, it makes no sense. Well, I don't think people say
1: SAC capital. It's literally just the shorthand SAC, right? So I call it SAC. My husband calls it SAC. And so I said, I was like, John, can you message your friends who work at Point72 and your boss and all these people and make sure that like, I'm not making an idiot of myself calling it. He's like, no, that's what people say. So he was messaging his Meanwhile, boss. Meanwhile, I'm
0: LinkedIn messaging senior portfolio managers at point 72 to whom I have not spoken in 12 years, being like, "Hey, how do you pronounce?" Do you message Alex. Me? No, I did not message no. Alex because I wanted John to text Alex, but I mean that's like being like I messaged James Gorman to ask if you call it MS or Morgan Stanley. Like,
1: right. Well, I think that's the answer. There's pockets of people who call it SAG. There's of pockets of people who call it SAC Capital. It's probably like the formal is SAC Capital. And like it
0: doesn't even exist anymore. <laughs> like-
1: <laughs> right. That's also true too. So no one who's listening to this podcast is going to have any idea what... SAC capital or stock is anyway, right? but it was, it was funny because we were going back and forth. You want to be so careful with words. We talked to Lindsay about nutritionist versus dietitian. We were talking about like executive coach versus career coach, like words matter. So we wanted to be careful that we were not saying something that was completely wrong. And I don't honestly, know.
0: this is so representative Of a very typical problem that happens in the financial services industry, where your ability to use jargon and nicknames and abbreviations correctly Mm -hmm. in your colloquial speech is one of the ways that you validate your credibility. Yeah. So if you use Mm -hmm. the wrong abbreviation, if you use the wrong acronym or slang or whatever in the wrong context, all of a sudden your credibility can be totally decimated.
1: Let's put this in speak that our followers and our social media people understand. If you use the laughing, crying emoji, you are an ancient millennial like us. And this might have changed, by the way. Now it's like you use a skull. Now it's like you're showing your colors as being a thousand years old. It's like you use this. Oh, you're not cool because you don't know that you're supposed to do this.
0: Or I type out, ha, ha, ha. Oh, I do that. I do LOL. <laughs> ha ha ha. Now that we've taken you guys down this rabbit hole, we are going to <laughs> launch into our conversation with again, Kate Corliss and Cameron Blonde from Go By Side. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. Let's bring them on.
1: We have Kate and Cam from Go By Side back on. This is part 2 of a multi-part series where in our part 1 episode, we focused on private equity recruiting and spent the bulk of the time talking about on-cycle private equity recruiting. Today, we're going to focus a little bit more on hedge fund recruiting and also get into some other nuances with the private equity recruiting. But Kate and Pam, if you guys don't mind, if you could quickly give us the like overview of your bio and go by side, we'll sure. start with you, Kate. <laughs> yeah, Sure.
2: Kristen and I go way back. We both worked at Morgan Stanley post-recession, which dates us a little bit too much (laughs) so, and then have since stayed in the field of finance. I worked in private equity right after I did investment banking, and then I moved actually over to the recruiting side for private equity, where I've been for the last decade or so. Mm Kind of had the inside scoop, and then now I really enjoy placing candidates into roles in those investing seats and private equity hedge funds investment managers all the like
3: Love awesome it. and my name is Cameron Woll and I've worked with Kate for close to 10 years now which is pretty crazy I started my <laughs> my career directly in search worked and touching private equity for about a decade now I'm the president of Go By Side, and Kate and I have been working together at Go By Side for about a year now
0: one of the things that I'd like to pick up our conversation from last time and expand that conversation a little bit when an analyst comes to you wanting to look for an exit opportunity out of investment banking or out of wherever they are. Let's assume that they aren't quite sure if they're looking for private equity or a hedge fund. Should they be honest with you? Like, how does that conversation usually go? Should they say, I'm open to all opportunities. Can you give me some guidance about where you think I might be the best fit? Or do you want them coming to you saying, I am laser focused on this exit opportunity. Where should I go?
2: Yeah, I think that it's, first and foremost to establish kind of the intent and the hope for our relationship with candidates. We are there to help them. So honesty mm-hmm. is always the best policy in every situation, at any stage of the process, whether it's when you're beginning to think about recruiting, when you're into final rounds, all of those things. We are certainly on your side in this one. And I think that transparency is always the best. If you're new in your process and you genuinely aren't sure, then obviously tell us. And maybe we can talk through a little bit of why you're interested in both so we can help to formulate the logic behind the answer. They're very different in the day-to-day, mm-hmm. kind of like when your early episodes we you explain sales and trading versus investment banking there's clearly a different disposition of person that thrives in one versus the other right the way people operate and so it genuinely is pretty rare once people dive in deep into the content of each role that they would genuinely be interested in both i think there are some mm. hedge funds that act more like private equity investing in the fact they take long positions yes. and the kind of diligence they do and stuff that's a little bit more understandable but if you're saying you want to do like a quant hedge fund and you also want to do private equity i'm like <laughs> Really? No, don't. you don't. Yeah. Something's not right there. But I think the overarching simple answer to question is yes, always be honest. And as it continues to update, that's part of what we really pride ourselves in is having a quick ability for you to update your preferences on our end. So you can yeah. kind of continue to iterate on that as you work through your own process, because all of us know we've changed our minds daily, weekly, monthly, whatever the case may be. So we want to follow you along that journey, but make sure that we know where your
1: head is. So we send you the right opportunities. Is it a bad idea if someone comes to you and they're like, I really want whatever is the best opportunity I can get. So that means I want to start with on-cycle, private equity recruiting. If I'm not successful, then I want to do both hedge funds and off-cycle. Is that a terrible thing to say? I know when I was interviewing, I was doing banking and sales and trading and consulting. I was casting a wide net because I wasn't as confident in my abilities to get a job as without like the right. Yeah. And it's so competitive. I think there's probably a lot of people who are in the boat of, I want to get whatever job I can. So I'm going to essentially go through the processes of starting with the on-cycle private equity recruiting. And then if I don't make it, I do off-cycle and I do maybe hedge fund recruiting. How do they come to you and say that without making themselves an unattractive candidate? I would actually take it a step back and
3: say, totally understood, right? Like at the end of the day, especially when you're younger, you're trying to find the best next step to set you up mm-hmm. for your long term career. So, hear you on the point you're making. I think overall, though, if we're meeting a candidate and it's right before on cycle, we totally understand that they might not a hundred percent understand like the best fit for them but just because of the process you're forced to make decisions in such a truncated timeline that you kind of have to narrow the scope a bit uh, purely because of the way in which the process is so i would say if we're taking on cycle off the table in terms of answering your question then absolutely it's an iterative process and the way that candidates most of the time present that to our team is our first interview would be, Hey, I'm interested in going to the buy side. The types of roles that I've been exposed to so far are mega fund, cap. I've actually been working closely with this VC firm and I've been exposed to this long, short hedge fund. I'm honestly not sure which one I think is going to be the best fit. So I'm interested in interviewing for a couple and figuring it out. Great. Absolutely, as long as they're genuinely interested in the mm-hmm. roles that we're putting in front of them uh, and we're not wasting our clients' time, absolutely happy to be with them on that journey, especially the younger they are. It's really hard when you're 22 to be like, yes, I know 100%, I want X. Sometimes you know that based off of interactions you've had with the teams through interviews. So to circle back to Kate's point, honesty is definitely the best policy and and just taking on cycle out of the equation because we're just an unfortunate situation where we're, we really are assessing people because the process could kick off the next day, that night, and we only want to put roles in front of them that we know they're really interested in uh, Uh and would accept.
2: I wanted to make one point on the question that you made about the best job. Please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that a huge part and what I'm pretty passionate about and we talked about is one of the missions of Go Side is helping to answer that question. And I know it's one of your missions too, is there's so many different things to do in finance that are so Mm. different from one another that it's on you to really engage with various things. There's so many resources out there. We just added on training so you can like go on there and use those services for a discount to like start to just get smart on what's what. What is venture capital? What is growth equity? What is hedge fund investing? What is private equity? How does it? Very, what we're calling the buy side 101 component of it, where we'll hold your hand and help you have tools to figure out what you really want to do. But when you say words like the best, when you're young, you're trying to open as many doors as possible. And there's a point at which, generally pretty early in your career, where you start to go the other direction, where you start to be like, okay, now I can't yeah. do all the things. So I think this mm-hmm. thing is more interesting. And you kind of chart a path. And so the best choice on that path is different than the best choice on the next path. And I think that the more honest and inherently curious a candidate is about a certain sector, a certain job that comes through in spades. And they'll be more successful there because they're fundamentally interested in it. Casting a wide net is not a bad thing, but I would encourage the person who's doing that to take a beat maybe and think about what things they actually like most about their day-to-day now, what they would spend their free time doing, what are the websites they go to. You want your work to be less like work and more like what the things you like to do. So right. just think more about it. Talk to more people. Do more informational interviews. Just start figuring out more data and that answer of I'll cast a really wide nano open to all things will likely not be true. Yeah, Kate, that's yeah. a
3: really good point. I know that, like, when Kate and I talk to a candidate, for instance, who they come on and they're so passionate about a deal they just did or a specific industry, it's just the conversation's so fun. And it's like fun discovering what opportunities could be a great fit and going through that process with them. It's nice when people do know, but we also understand if you don't. But yeah, just ask that you have the curiosity to figure that question out. And we can help you, obviously, along the way.
0: And I think best can yeah. be interpreted as many different things. For so many people, it's just a knee-jerk response of, well, what does everyone say is the most prestigious career? And that's the best. And first right. of all, that's going to change with time, with market conditions. Yeah. Just because something's the best in one person's eyes doesn't mean that it's the best for you and that you are likely to get that whatever it is, high compensation, high prestige within that, because it may not be best for
2: you and you may suck at it. The whole, what's the best group? What's the best bank? When it comes to like the best group, the best bank, the banks that if you're looking to go to private equity at a mega fund, then best changes. If you're looking to go to mm-hmm. a middle market fund in a second tier city, then best changes, you know? And mm-hmm. so the kind of assumption that there is one prestigious elite path and the rest is all riffraff is totally a misconception. And I think that that's what gets a lot of kids held up at this age because they're they're chasing some elusive high pedigree dream but they don't really even necessarily have the substance as to why and the firms that hold that are different to your point like i was reading liar's poker again right now i think it's interesting and like you know solemn brothers was a huge deal back then and like obviously mm-hmm. no longer exists like Demon <laughs> right, Brothers, Demon. Jen, no longer exists this stuff changes and so i would shift the question from what's the best to like um what's the best fit for me right what is going to set me up for success in this type of role long term
3: Just to double click on Kate's, the concept she she just brought up of best for you. I think we could go even like a layer deeper into what motivates you creates Mm. like the definition of the best for you. And Kate and I chatted about this a lot recently thinking through, okay, what motivates me is that stamp of approval on my resume. That would probably fall under the prestige. They're motivated by, they want to work at a brand name. They're motivated by prestige and totally fine. Okay. Heard. Now we understand that. Or it Mm. could be comp. I want to work at the best firm. Best for that person means I want to get paid the most. Or it could be culture. I want to work at the best firm. I've only heard good things about the associate experience. What's the best for that individual? But being honest with yourself of like, okay, what's the best actually for me? And like when I say best, what do I mean? Do I mean best Mm -hmm. people, best comp, best location, best career check? What does that mean? And so
0: we've spoken about the on-cycle PE recruiting process. I'd love to touch on off-cycle PE recruiting and also what the equity long-short hedge fund recruiting process looks like. Is there something akin to an on-cycle recruiting path for that? Or is everything off-cycle? And and what does that recruiting timeline look like?
2: So I could talk to the private equity component of it in the sense that the off-cycle process most, the market has shifted to have more placements in the off-cycle. So when we say off-cycle, everybody would think about in the classic way of interviewing for a job where there's not any sort of gun held to your head, no short timeline necessarily. The process evolves kind of organically. The timeline varies depending on the, the type of firm and how much time they have to devote to it. All of those things are different, but more and more on-cycles become less popular and like less people have fallen off the market then, then obviously the more popular off cycle is. So when are you
0: typically eligible to participate in private equity recruiting as an investment banking analyst? If it's not happening the day you graduate college, like it is for on cycle. When may you be likely to engage recruiters within those first two years?
2: I think as early as possible Term to engage them is the right answer. Mm-hmm. If you have capacity that first summer and you hit the desk, you are an intern even to reach out to them. I think. Mean, I think it's no, there's never too early. As far as when you're really eligible, most of our clients come to us saying we want someone with one year of experience. Mm-hmm. So, Although it's generally a two-year program, they'd be willing to take someone after one year. It's very rarely the case though in private equity where people can jump ship for like the next day without having the kind of one-year type of thing. So I would say one year is the minimum as far as when they're actually eligible to start. But say, mm-hmm. for example, I'm interviewing right now for a job that starts like summer 2024 and I started my banking job in July, 2023. That's okay. That, Got that happens because they're like, I don't want to do this long-term. I'm going to interview now for the next roles. Sometimes clients might say, no, I only want second-year banking and they define the pool. But I would always say if they know they want to do it, then the earlier the better to kind of start the conversation. And then in that instance, just make sure you keep us posted on your conviction of your preferences moving forward so we can help with the matching component. Especially right now with Wall Street deals not being as active, you are going to create an interview after like two months effectively like on the actual desk. Chances are you're going to like bomb those interviews. Like I don't think that you're going to have the skill set it's going to take to do the job. Further along you are, the higher chance you have of making the move. And the common shifting point is after the two years into private Mm -hmm. equity. Hedge funds, it can happen right here, right now. Just like you can lose your job super fast in a hedge fund if the fund's not performing. It goes the other way quickly too. Yeah. I
3: would just jump in on there in terms of timeline. Like if we think about the most traditional for private equity, right? If someone is in banking for two years, then they're in private equity for two years, then they either get an MBA or they switch firms or they stay for a career track role. If we're thinking about when people are actually starting their jobs, I feel like this has been kind of a market trend. Over the last couple of years, Firms are just focused on getting the right people. Talent mm. is really competitive to get and you want the right people in the door. So five years ago, it might've been, it's it's for a 2024 start. This person has to have two years of experience. I feel like we're working on more opportunities where the client's like, ideally this is for a summer 2024 start. Like if you find an excellent candidate and they want to leave <laughs> Q1, or if they want to leave end of year, we'd be willing to have that conversation. And I feel like that's just been a trend throughout the market in that, Firms are being a bit more flexible in terms of scope of candidates they're willing to consider and start dates because, again, their goal is to find the right person and the right person isn't available every day. And and so you need to be a bit more flexible.
1: Which makes sense, actually, because it seems there has been this trend to hire directly out of undergrads. So if you're hiring directly out of undergrad, why not hire someone, even if they only have a few months of experience in banking, you still have the resources to get them trained up, it would seem, especially at some of these larger funds.
2: And that's certainly a trend too. If people are trying to pick analysts right out of college and then hope to like train them internally, there have been ebbs and flows of how successful that's been. But talent is hard to come by and good talent mm-hmm. is in very high demand. And so there's a lot of ways to slice and dice it. If you are a good candidate, if you present well, if you have a lot of conviction, all of those things, yeah. it's less cookie cutter as far as how you're going to get the job.
1: It's more of making sure you're going through the steps. So it sounds like for the most part off cycle, it's a little bit more ad hoc.
3: It's like, well, cycle should just be called recruiting. Like, yeah. It's like,
0: <laughs> yeah, 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 it's just like, yeah. like well, it's normal just, recruiting.
3: <laughs> I
1: yeah. love that. that. It's like it's the normal thing. Yeah, yeah. It's pocket.
3: funny. I chatted with someone who he's finishing his second year at a, at a private equity firm. And mm-hmm. the last time we interacted, he recruited on cycle. So it would have been like almost four years ago. And he was like, yeah, I'm just trying to understand like, when is the on cycle process for this next stuff? Like, am I, <laughs> am I too off cycle? And I was like, totally understand why you're saying that, but there's no, <laughs> there's no set process at this stage. It's just, there are opportunities on a rolling basis. You'll see them jump at the ones that are interesting. Love it. Is there Um, any seasonality
0: around pay cycles though? Do you see a bunch of spots open
3: up for lateral hires maybe? I would say some. Most firms will find out If people are leaving, yeah, for like an MBA program pretty early. So in like March could be a bit Mm. earlier. And so yes, usually you'll see jobs pop up in kind of like the March, April, May timeframe for those like VP slots of these associates are leaving to go get an MBA, we need to hire, you know, X, Y, and Z, either associates or VPs. A lot of firms that have two year programs though, it doesn't affect them because it's a known quantity. Like they know who's going to be rolling off and they've already filled the funnel. The more senior you get, I would say it matters more because Mm -hmm. obviously your bonuses are a pretty big part of your overall cash incentive. And then you also have to deal with carry, et cetera. And so overall timeline matters more. So we've talked a lot about the
0: qualities and the experience and the type of interest that someone might have to make them successful in private equity. Can we speak a little bit about what kind of candidates are gravitating towards equity long short hedge funds that you're seeing in your candidate pool and help our listeners think through maybe this is the right field for me versus private equity?
3: I mean, I think the main thing, I actually, I don't think I interact with a ton of candidates who are interested in both. Just thinking about conversations that I've had recently, it's usually... They have been investing on the side for a long time and they've known that they've wanted to move into the hedge fund space. And so they're thinking about the best way to go about that. And then basically deciding what strategy is most interesting. But I think the difference in terms of like types of candidates is someone who's interested in private equity. The interview process is very different and it's more akin to if they're an investment banker, what they're doing today versus Mm -hmm. someone who's interested in, in moving to a hedge fund. There's a lot of side prep you need to be doing, but most of the time you're doing it already anyway, because that's how like, you are intrinsically motivated and what gets you excited and gets you out of the bed in terms of looking at potential companies, looking at the market and mm-hmm. digging into to obviously like the ups and downs, et cetera. So I think the big thing is, is just understanding the motivation factor. And then
2: I don't talk to a ton of candidates who are interested in both just because the strategies are so different. In private equity, Generally, you have controlling ownership. And so you're on the team that's calling the Mm -hmm. shots. So Mm -hmm. if you see something wrong, you can generally implement change to try to solve said problem. If you're a public investor, obviously, unless you're an activist investor and have enough to get kind of tip that tipping point, but just taking that off the table, if you're a public investor, you don't have that same ability. And so you're a bystander and your job is to get information and make predictions, take positions based on your knowledge, public market knowledge for the most part. So it's a fundamentally different day in and day out. Mm -hmm. And so your interest in kind of what the things that you wanna be involved in, if you wanna go work with the company to enact change, you're probably not going to want to be a public investor, right. right? And people who are really into public investing, I mean, they follow the markets like crazy. Yeah. They have their own portfolio, yes, but then they also love getting in the weeds about nuances around stocks. Or I'm sure you guys obviously have a lot of close friends who are hedge funds. And so the people who sitting around at dinner table will love talking about names and talking about mm-hmm. themes and talking, you know, that's just the way their brain works. And it's just fundamentally different.
0: What seats so, are these yeah. candidates coming out of for equity long, short hedge funds?
2: I think a lot of sales and trading go into hedge funds more Mm -hmm. so than private equity, but I think Mm -hmm. both – certain private
1: equity firms, obviously – Wait, are you um seeing – I'm like surprised that you'd see people from sales and trading going to equity log short just because again, this is back in 2010, but it seemed like it was mostly the banking people who would go to equity log short. Or is, is it just It just like, depends on the the firm and if they're
2: research driven and kind of the way they do their diligence, mm-hmm. right? I mean, actually you guys talked about this too, but the Sam Bankman freed the book that Michael Lewis oh, wrote into yeah. the inside group yeah. of Jane Street and how that worked. Like the way they hired, fundamentally different, like the test they're putting yeah. those candidates through. So right. it's up in the air where they come from and they don't have a bias necessarily. They want the best candidates and the tests they put them through are very specialized based on the strategy they're about to employ. And so they want to yeah. know how successful that candidate will be and having that skill set in their brain operating the way that that fund and that strategy is is kind of planning to evolve yeah and so it's not as cookie cutter ish they come from pulse and there are some places that take really deep dive private equity diligence approaches to public investing, and that's mm-hmm. obviously they look at investment banking type of
1: candidates for that right yeah they're yeah, not going
0: to want sales and trading analysts
2: yeah
1: well, because I mean I remember when I was interviewing back for SAC, <laughs> I mean they sent me the most intense case study where it was yeah. like here's all the financials, here's some research, build a model, write a whole investment thesis. What's the price you're buying at? What's the price you're selling? How long are you holding it for? What is your projection? How does it differ from the research projection? It was like super intense. This is none of the stuff that you would get out of sales and trading, but it's such a good point that it's like, with hedge funds, there's just so many strategies, right? Exactly. And the multi-strategy
2: hedge funds are obviously going to approach it differently mm. than ones
1: that have nuance. So that's another difference
2: too, is thinking about just kind of the umbrella you're interviewing for, like a citadel or whatever, versus Mm -hmm. a small, you know, totally different as far as the way that you're going to approach that, the way they're going to approach you. Right, right, right. Absolutely.
0: And so is Kristen's story of getting a really in-depth case study pretty representative of what you're seeing hedge fund candidates be asked to do? What other kinds of interview prep might someone who's considering a role at an equity long, short hedge fund be asked to do?
2: The thing that Kristen explained is very common in a handful Mm. of places for a lot of investing roles, despite the strategy, because that's what they're testing in you. They want to know, can you think Mm -hmm. like an investor? And I think that's the biggest test in general is like, are you just a monkey doing what you're told to be done? Or can you think for yourself? I would be able to see that you're an investor and can think like an investor and have good rationale to support why you're making certain investment decisions. So they get at that information in a handful of ways, but they're all trying to solve for that because at the end of the day, they yeah. don't want somebody who's just going to push numbers or push papers or do, they are not looking for that level of an employee when we're talking about our echelon in this, course. this group, right? They want somebody who's can think for themselves, take positions for themselves, all of those types of things. And so that generally does entail a pretty rigorous process rather than a 30 minute conversation of, Tell me, do you want to be an investor? Yes, I do. <laughs> oh, why? Okay, cool. I'll trust you. Let's hope you're right. You know, it doesn't go like that.
1: Yeah, and I found when I was doing a lot of these, there was a lot of the brain teasers. Like similar yes. to I actually felt that it was it was almost like a combination of a much more intense investment banking interview as well as the sales and trading side. I mean, the level it seems that of candidate they were looking for, but of equity long short, this was this was my experience, seems like up here, no, no yeah. offense to private equity, but it was like private equity was like, can you build the LBO? And obviously, yeah. it's it's a little bit different. I mean, yes. but with the hedge funds, it's like, how does your brain work? And wanting to see how you think, and then also you do these in-depth case studies, and so it was just, it felt like you were like playing multi-dimensional chess a versus That's so for true. private equity. If you can basically explain why you want private equity, explain your story, and you can kind of do what you've been taught how to do, you can do it. But I felt like the bar to get a hedge fund interview just seemed like much more because they were testing how exactly. the brain, works. The
2: brain teasers in the logic exercises. They want to know what you do with uncertain information. So mm-hmm. it's those kinds of questions Which with like sense. that make yeah. you prove out how you would logically think through without right. knowing very much how right. you would think through a certain scenario because you don't have perfect information ever. And you have to make decisions like this because the market's waiting for yeah. nobody. Very and so right. I think that that is a skill. That's a, a level of brain power that is not necessarily engaged in private equity come back to the bullpen and tell you the stories of the crazy riddles or the crazy thought exercises they were put through. And you're like, Whoa, that's intense. I have no idea how I would have handled that. I don't even know how to prepare for that to be totally honest. And there are, you can't, and that's the
0: reality is you can't, there's much more a test for innate, je ne sais quoi Ability, right? We talked about grit on our last yeah. podcast. Yeah. This isn't testing for grit, and you know how you said, wh- "Who's the smart police?" Yeah. Right. This mm-hmm. is the smart police. This is, is okay. Do you have that kernel of supreme intelligence that's going to make you that much faster, that much better yeah. at probability-adjusted risk? Yep. Right. Versus exactly. the next person who could go in a room and study this information for a week. Well, guess what? If you study it for a week, the trade window. Yep. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
3: Yeah.
0: Yeah.
2: yeah <laughs>
3: exactly. It's already happened.
2: Exactly. Um, yeah.
3: I'd actually say on that point, Jen, another interesting thing from like a candidate prep standpoint, when you're prepping for a private equity interview, there are really only so many things that you could see in terms uh-huh. of like type of evaluation, type of models, type of interview questions. And so the prep is pretty similar. So once you're in a pretty good spot to interview, I feel like you don't need to iterate as much. You obviously need to look at the firm and understand what investments they've made, what sector right. they focus on, et cetera. You need to be thoughtful, but I feel like it's way more variable when When you're interviewing for hedge funds, because a yes, the market changes every day, but also like you're expected to have an investment pitch ready. And like, it probably should be kind of related to where you're interviewing or have like Mm -hmm. some sort of reasoning behind why you're bringing that specific one up. And your answer last week probably isn't going to be your answer next week because a hundred things have changed.
1: Yeah. Mm I'm curious from what we had seen. It seems like the, the sort of new crop of to be analysts coming up seem much less interested in hedge funds and much more interested in private equity. And I'm curious if that's what you're seeing. I mean, it's funny because Jen and I had had some of these conversations just about there is so much variability at a hedge fund in terms of like your potential earnings. Like you could be making $10 million, like the Sam Bankman freestyle before yeah. you're 30. I don't i or... recommend that. No, no, no. <laughs> I mean, no, not, a, not an
0: FTX. A <laughs> yeah, not an FTX, not an
1: FTX. So yeah, no, we did this review of Going Infinite and Michael Lewis was just talking about, he was paid a million dollars at 25 and was told 10 years into his career, he'd be paid 15 to $75 million. And that's something that jives with what Jen, we saw with the people that we knew who were going to these hedge fund roles. But I don't know if it's just like people aren't aware of it or they are, but they also understand that the chance of that is so much lower. Whereas you do the private equity route, you're on a path and you're not going to have that upside at the beginning, but you chug along. And by the time you're 10 years, 15 years, 20 years in, that's where there is tremendous upside, but it's not going to be in the first five to 10 years of your career. Are you seeing that people are much less interested in hedge funds or is that just the perception that Jen and I have gotten? Is
0: private equity still the big sexy thing or are hedge funds making a comeback in a higher rate, (laughs) higher
3: volatility environment is basically what Kristen's asking.
1: This is why I love Jen. She basically takes the chicken shit that I spit out and makes it into chicken salad. I'm like...
3: That's really funny. So it's interesting because I would say it has fluctuated a lot over the last couple of years, but I I do think there is a resurgence. Again, it's for the right candidate, right? Like there are always going to be those candidates who are really interested in the volatility and risk that comes with going to work for a a hedge fund. Private equity recruiting is just like a lot more stable and known. There are cycles around it. It's a lot more visible in terms of like Mm -hmm. when firms are going to the market. And so I would say like the big thing is, yes, we are seeing a lot of young, hungry talent running at hedge fund strategies and getting excited about public markets we've also seen a good amount of people who were in private equity, went to go get an MBA and are now interested in getting into the public markets, which I think is really telling in terms of what the sexy job is today, where the interest is. And then I think, again, circling back to our early conversation, definition of sexy, for some people, it's like, where can I make the most money the (laughs) fastest? Um, And for that, obviously, there's huge potential at a hedge fund, the younger you are, whereas it's a bit more standard and known at a private equity firm. But yeah, Mm -hmm. I would say over the last year, we've definitely seen more hedge fund opportunities pop up both at the larger funds but also like a lot of firms breaking off and like people wanting to do their own thing so I feel like there are way more like three-person four-person shops and they'll pick up like one analyst but I'll I'll pass it back to Kate I think she wants to talk about like the wealth creation and carry component oh I love that
2: and so and obviously in hedge funds, the way that you're paid from, I mean, no matter how junior or senior you are, based on fund performance, the pro-rater amount you get depends on seniority, right? But as far as your access to that general pool, that doesn't change. Whereas the real money in private equity is in carried interest. And that mm-hmm. is generally not granted until the post-MBA equivalent roles, like the VP level role. And then there's a vesting schedule behind the carried interest and when it does vest. So when you have ability to kind of earn out on that and get paid out on that, but interest is basically the sexy thing you get for being in private equity, even though you didn't put your money down on the table and invest your actual money. You invested your time, your sweat, your tears, all the hard work that gives you that additional interest and profit sharing ability in the investment. And so that's where the MDs and as you get more senior have a higher percentage of dollars at work in the fund. So when the fund performs, they get part of that windfall definitionally yeah. based on the amount of carried interest that they have been granted a- amongst their tenures. And associates don't ever get access to that pool for the most part. There are very few instances in which they do. For the most part, their base and bonus Cash. That's that, and then the carried interest part kicks in later in your career, and that's truly where the wealth creation happens. And that's yeah. the even carried interest is, is treated different, different from a tax perspective. There's a lot of very loopholey type feeling things around private equity where you can get really wealthy with uh, having a component of the GP fund right. in that and the carried interest component. And with the hedge fund, each year it's like starting over again. It's kind of mm-hmm. like, what did we do this year? And what have you not, done for
3: me lately? Exactly. <laughs> it's
2: not what. Pri- percent of your carry is vested now versus before. So when we pay out, what do you get? And blah, blah, blah. blah. It's none of that stuff. And then the the way that the waterfall works, none of those nuances. Can you speak
0: to waterfalls and hurdle rates a little bit? Because that's something we haven't really touched on.
2: Sure, yeah. So I'll say hurdle rate first. Hurdle rate's usually the minimum investment percentage return that the limited partners are getting for the investment. So I'm going to invest $100. The hurdle rate's, let's say, 7%. So 7% is like accruing on a pick interest basis while the money is being put to work, and then you're paid that out first. So you get your principal out first, plus that hurdle rate. So it's not so just $100 is, you put yeah. in. It's one hundred dollars plus the interest compounded at that hurdle
1: rate. And once and this you're is the, made, investor. The, the investor, this yes, is the, the LPs, investor. the like the pension funds, the endowments, yes. they're going to get call it like seven percent not guaranteed but like right that, they're getting that out first exactly. for the, and
0: for those of yeah. you who haven't watched my social media video with all of five and a half views about paid in kind interest PIC stands for paid in kind um, oh yes
2: that yeah <laughs> sorry yeah no you're um, fine and I was like eight yeah seven eight is like generally the as obviously rates rise and things change that number changes but it's basically mm. saying we know that out there in the market you can get five percent for your money right now we want you to give us your money it's riskier here so we're gonna guarantee you a certain hurdle Hurdle rate So, you know, worst case scenario, we're going to make this kind of return on my investment. And so when you think about a waterfall, when a company is sold, there's a chunk of cash, obviously. The bank, it pays, it's paid back very first because obviously you owe them money and that's the way that credit agreements work. And then you pay out your LPs and you pay out the hurdle rate. And then that's when the split starts to happen. So that's when the 80-20 comes in. So after all of those things happen, then the 80-20 plays. And then that's kind of when the carried interest is worth something. And the LPs keep getting more return on their investment than the initial, plus that hurdle rate. So they're getting every dollar thereafter, after the bank's paid and after the initial capital and the hurdle rate is paid, every dollar thereafter is
1: split 80-20. Got it. And so is there ever like a catch-up where it's 80-20, So the 7% goes to the... LPs. Yep. The twenty percent is that everything over the seven percent, or is yes. there ever like a catch up where okay, so it's just everything over. generally
2: over the, And I mean, every fund can be a little different. So waterfalls are written differently in the mm-hmm. sense that I mean, the way the money flows, you know, that's generally how it works. But as far as various hurdle rates, who's get paid, all of those types of things, it's obviously nuanced. The seven percent is one of the things that fluctuates the most. Um, well, it's probably and, just
0: based on historical S and P returns, right? They're yeah. like, okay, did we beat the S and P? Invest, <laughs> right. locking up all your money with us for five to seven years. Do we at least do that?
2: Right and there 's also two different a lot of funds don 't but waterfall <laughs> types too there are two different types of waterfalls there 's a European waterfall and an American waterfall and in a european waterfall the LPs get paid out their principal investment plus a hurdle rate, a d- predetermined interest rate before the GP gets any sort of money. And then American waterfall, the GP is entitled to carry interest at the same time as the LPs. And so, oh, so it's like option the, expiries. Exactly. So it's like <laughs> when you think about waterfalls and carry interest, and stuff, that's definitely something you want to look at and something that you want to know based on the fund and based on when you're going to get paid out and when your money is worth something. So depending on what party you are, you prefer one versus the other. Is Got there it. a
0: fee structure differential to compensate investors for the difference between the value of the American
2: option versus the European option, if you will? That's a good question. I'm not as, as sure of specifics where there is a nuance. So I would venture to say, yes, there probably is because- <laughs> Right, like you that, have to incentive, yeah, right? If you're you know, going to get paid- some like, way, like, yeah, um, but right. I don't know well, details, it for me. No, how it makes sense. I do know that one of the most important things that we deal with in recruiting when it comes to carried interest is that that money gets left on the table when you leave that firm. So you're right. only, it's not like I buy a Disney stock. I go move to Timbuktu. I can still sell my Disney stock. Like, it doesn't matter where uh-huh. I, work, who I work for anything like that. Right. But in carried interest, I have to be working for the fund to get the money. And right. so mm-hmm. if I leave the fund, so if we're working on an MD role and I'm trying to get you to switch funds, the <laughs> cash they leave on the table, as they would call it, can be substantial amounts of money, but it's also completely an estimate based on how mm. their portfolio, how what mark to market is, like how they think they're gonna pay out, what their investing schedule looks like, whether it's an American waterfall, a European waterfall, all those nuances <laughs> play into their kind of best guess of what money they're leaving on the table. But that's a huge that huge, someone huge then part. has to buy
0: them out of, right? right. I'm assuming if right. like you're trying to court this person, it's like, all right, what's my buyout gonna be?
2: Well and, and mm. generally too, this is that the thing is is that they're not getting cash for that money being left on the table because again it's uncertainty. So mm. they're more trying to make them whole from a carry standpoint. Point. But the caveat, it's a vesting schedule. So, although at your previous fund, you were fully vested, so all your carry was fully vested, you change roles, you leave all of the money that would have been paid out from that fund that's still being sold on the table. You're walking away from all that potential income and you're starting in a new firm. And they're Mm -hmm. saying, We're going to give you interest in our fund on a new vesting schedule that starts today. So, right. That might you know, pay out five to seven years exactly. from now. Congrats. Exactly. <laughs> and so that switching cost is extremely high. And wow. that's why it's the biggest part of the discussion for sure when you get to see sure. your level placements where cash comp is much less of an issue. <laughs> like nobody <than> yeah. cares. <laughs> the carry because right, 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 that's right. where all the money is. And it's a bummer too because it's like golden handcuffs in a way too because if you think there's two huge deals closing this year, you're miserable in your job, but you have your carry fully vested, you might just stick it out because you want to see those checks, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think that that makes our jobs a little bit harder. And usually those conversations, a recruiter's not deeply involved when it gets the super nuance of like, what is the contractual back and forth? Like I'm not in that kind of loop, generally speaking. We just talk high level terms about how many points will you get? What's the vesting schedule? all of those types of things. When there's transactions, do you get any portion of the fees? Like all of those types of things we can talk about. But when it comes to the nuanced agreements, they're very detailed and generally live kind of within that level of employees and employers. One quick question.
1: So we were talking, Jen and I, about garden leave. And one of the things that in, I think it was like the Financial Times, especially with these hedge funds, like Millennium and Citadel, they would have garden leaves of over a year, two years. I think we just read the fund and it was three years or something crazy. Is that as common with private equity? Do you see garden leaves of these long paid non-competes or not really? Well, I mean, thinking about the rationale for a garden leave
2: is because they want to make sure you're not taking material, non-public mm-hmm. information to your new shop, right? And so it's rarely the case in which I would be working today for KKR. I'm agreeing to go work for Blackstone two years from now. You're not guaranteed to do something in the future kind of thing. I might go work there tomorrow, but- it's private market, so there's not necessarily any like kind of. Mm. Over, there's no way you could really take proprietary information with you, type of thing, and, and go and make money on that the next day. So the whole garden leave component doesn't necessarily play, and just because that competitive yeah. risk is not there, yeah. but it depends completely on the strategy. And hedge funds a thousand percent makes sense yeah. because you <sighs> yeah, think yeah, that yeah. there's like your relationship, your approach, your the everything you can take that with you no matter where you go. Whereas yeah. in private equity, the private investing is very
1: specialized for that fund. So it sounds like it's less common because I was talking about that with Jen. It's not really as much of a thing as it is in the sales and trading and and hedge fund space. But it's funny
2: too, because you'll see some candidates who are like ending their first year of an associate program at a private equity firm, which is supposed to be a two or three year program. And they potentially know they want to switch to career track, but they want to stick out their two years in private equity. And I'm like, that's not the way this works. Like you don't recruit (laughs) for private equity recruiting once you're in it on a year lead cycle to Cameron's initial point. You do it for the next couple months, you're going to leave as soon as you get the job type of thing. So Recruiting is recruiting. <laughs> yeah. Just in case you're wondering, I'm going to work for a competitor in a year, but I'm still going to work for you for the next year. But I promise you will not tell them anything that we're doing. Like, right, that's right, right. not going to happen. You know? <laughs> it doesn't work. Yeah. No, yeah. And that's... just
3: to provide like a tangible example for candidates and like people listening to the podcast, I feel like someone who's an investment banker today, right. Is going to a private equity firm. Most likely there's not going to be any type of garden leave. You can actually think of it in a way that like, that's a great thing for the bank because those are more relationships, like more deals could come out of that. So yeah, generally we don't see that. And then to Kate's point, when you're at a private equity firm and you're recruiting to either lateral to another one or or move to another one generally, it's an immediate move. And yes, you're not gonna see like those extended garden leaves. The one thing we see is when we're working with candidates who are more senior and they're moving from one bank to another bank,
1: there That's are really garden
3: considerable garden leaves there, which I feel like falls more in the sales and trading bucket. That's a three month we minimum. See that. Because again, you're moving from doing apples to doing mm-hmm. apples. So yes. it makes more sense. <laughs> right. So we've been talking a little bit about
0: going through this whole process. What actually happens when you get an offer at one of these places? What does it like offer look like? What are candidates yeah. asking for? What What are the structures of these things? What, what is it? How much
1: negotiation like? can you do? Can you get <laughs> your comp up? And we've talked
0: about, at the very senior level, people asking for buyouts, again, some kind of compensation for carry they're leaving on the table. For people who are coming from investment banking roles where they are paid in deferred stock, are they leaving that all on the table and walking away?
3: Yeah, so... A lot of good questions there. I think it's it's important when we think about offers to circle it back to like, who is the candidate getting the offer and what job are they going into? Mm -hmm. So there's so many variables at the offer stage. And part of our job is to educate the candidate throughout the process to make sure that all of those variables are known, discussed. So when they get an offer, there shouldn't be any surprises, right? We want candidates who get to the offer stage to feel like they're getting a known quantity. And then it's just about, yeah, talking to their network and and deciding, obviously, if they want to the job or not. But let's start junior and go senior. I'm just going to choose the most typical role for us because we we see it every day, but someone who's been in investment banking and they're accepting a private equity associate role. So that is where candidly, there is not a lot of negotiation. It is very standard. And it's something like if you think about like a mega fund, they have 20, let's say associates, all those associates are getting paid the exact same thing. They have the Mm -hmm. same package. It would be really tough If they started switching, obviously, like what each associate's base pay is like, that's just not scalable and that's tough as a business. So when you're going into a private equity associate role at a large fund, it is very standard. It is, this is what you're getting, but also it's usually a very great package. You're 24 (laughs) and you're making a lot. Most of the time they'll say the bonus is between X and Y, but generally you're getting the full cash that's in the offer. The other things to consider with private equity associate roles are when your bonus payout from your bank is. So, most firms hire on a summer cycle to just take that off the table. So, most banks are paying analysts bonuses in the summer. Most private equity firms are hiring analysts in the summer. So, it's Mm -hmm. hey, you get your bonus, great, come join us. That's the most typical. So, bonuses aren't even honestly part of the conversation. The only other two things that generally are asked are signing bonus and relocation. And so, signing bonus not usually part of it. I would say that's more typical for when you're accepting your first year analyst position at a bank. Like that's pretty typical to get a signing bonus. For a first year associate, not as typical. What firms will do is if they hire someone from San Francisco and they're moving to New York, or -hmm. if they hire someone from like Florida and they're moving to Chicago, whatever that is, sometimes a signing bonus or like relocation bonus, Mm -hmm. it varies what it's called, but some sort of allocation of funds at the beginning such that they'll pay for your moving can happen. Not mm-hmm. as common, but it does happen. And so we're um, probably talking like a small five-figure number. I'm
0: assuming yeah, they're not yeah. doing a it's GBO. Like 10K, they probably think you don't have 10K. any. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're not paying to sell your house and all that kind fun of stuff.
3: No. So that's most junior. There isn't a lot of wiggle room. It's pretty much it is what it is because either you're so big, it's institutionalized or you're small that like, this is what we can afford based mm-hmm. off of our management fees. Got um it. The more senior you get from a private equity standpoint, that's where offers just get more variable and and competitive. Our job is to make sure that we're having these hard conversations before the offer is actually in front of someone because you want to make sure they have the facts and they're not surprised but there's just so many more levers to pull. So cash compensation, are you putting more in base? Are you putting more in bonus? Mm-hmm. You might be leaving carry on the table at your old fund. What do you value that as? How can we make ours competitive towards that? And then also you're not dealing with a we have 20 analysts, so it's this way. If yeah. you're at a smaller fund, it's like we're hiring one VP and then mm-hmm. you're structuring what the comp looks like. So relocation bonuses are very much on the table. A lot of people yeah. have families, so it's more expensive mm-hmm. to yeah. move. And and so, yeah, the more senior you get, the offer stage becomes a lot longer conversation because understandably, when you make a move later on in your career, usually it's a a bigger deal. You're hoping to stay there for a longer time. And usually the amount on the table and the risk associated with it's higher.
0: And your motivations, (laughs) right? You're like, make sure my kid also gets into this private school. There's
3: so many more
0: things that are part of that decision that go well beyond just how much, what's the dollar
3: figure. Yeah, I can give high level this one example that Kate worked with a very senior person. They were relocating to Denver, and she definitely went so far as to explain these are the best schools for the kids. Oh, like, 100%. percent you got to be their real amazing.
0: estate agent too, Kate. That's I why you got to get that, keep that license. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you're like, you're living in this help neighborhood. Their, help what their is wives
2: it? get a job. Like, do the whole thing, right? Like, That's it's a lot exactly to ask right. somebody to pick up their whole lives and move across you're the country. You're like their
3: personal assistant in exactly. that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, the takeaway though is at the junior end way less variability to what firms are offering. More variables enter as it does in life, the more senior you get. And it varies candidate by candidate more because your performance always plays more of a role the
2: more senior you are. Well, and I would say a do and don't do. I mean, I always think advocating for yourself is a good thing to do. There's no harm in asking. The way you ask matters and the (laughs) way you frame it matters, but there's no harm in asking. So if you get the offer package and you're like, oh, I was really hoping it was going to be a little bit higher. I had a sense of it. Then, you can ask that. The answer is probably going to be no, but you can always <laughs> try to advocate for yourself. The one thing I would definitely discourage anyone from doing, which we see sometimes, is that they ask first and foremost, what's the vacation schedule? And like <sighs> how many days of pay- like time do I get off? And you're like, that's the very first thing you want to know. That is the biggest red flag ever. So even if you're very interested in that, definitely don't ask that question of the recruiter or of anybody until later, because that truly should not be like key motivating factor. Yeah. And so when you're going back and negotiating, as far as points to negotiate, I would not say that's one of the ones I would double click. I would try, <laughs> yeah. to, you know, try to negotiate on. They'll more talk about, can you talk to me about what the trajectory looks like if I continue to perform here? What will I yeah. make next year or the year after that? And mm-hmm. have a conversation about that. It's not part of the contract in writing of what you'll make, but you just have some mm-hmm. sense in your head of what the runway looks like. And so you can get yeah. more comfortable with the current, base package and the current salary if it's just a little bit lower than what you were hoping over the long term. But I think that the back and forth once an offer is out is references are generally a huge part of that last stage of the process. And mm. then when you have an offer out, the longer it stays out there without an answer, kind of the worst. Deadline timelines vary between you know 48 hours to, to up to like two weeks. So there's not a lot of standard as far as how long. We usually advise our clients on the lower end. We want them to have give the candidates time, but at the same time, they kind of know the answer. If they need yeah, two weeks yeah. to think about it, the answer is probably no. Um, yeah. But yeah. generally candidates want time to talk to their mentors and to go figure out if it's the right move. And that's where it'd be helpful for us to like dive into the back and forth too of what actually transpires between our clients saying, we gave Joe an offer and then we we're talking to Joe and we're working with Joe holding his hand as he works through whether or not he's going to accept the offer. That's a huge part of the level of involvement that we have as like a Kate and Cam, not necessarily Uh as like the analyst on our team, but that negotiation back and forth component is when we get really involved. That part of the recruiter relationship is where we can truly, truly be an advocate for you and be helpful for you because they don't know you're feeding us information. So we can ask questions on your behalf that are not necessarily coming from you. Or we can try to position the client of, oh, the candidate's really hoping for this. Like you can just massage it truly kind of act as an intermediary we're also educating our clients on like what is
3: market what they were paying two years ago probably isn't and shouldn't be what they're paying today and they're relying on us to to be able to to communicate what the uptick has been and why and so that's obviously a big piece of it
0: if you guys give them the color that five out of six candidates are looking for something in a range that's 10 percent higher than what you've been paying Will firms make an adjustment in real time, or is that just they're collecting data over the course of this process? And this is how pay cycles shift over the course of many years.
2: We worked closely with one of our clients who came to us with details about compensation, and we gave them a lot of feedback in the sense that your titles are super wonky, your pay structure is a little (laughs) bit off. We kind of gave them a whole laundry. I want to know what those titles were. Could do yeah, could do differently just to make it more market. They have instituted full overhauls for a firm, but they don't just give the new associate a higher salary or give the one VP a different title. They kind of do it globally, right? And they'll ask us as a partner, Can you just help us think this through? Are we generally in the right realm in the, for Smart. these titles, these buckets, these years of experience? and Firms are definitely understanding that comp is important and that life is getting more expensive. And so they do react to that. And then also, that sometimes when a new fund is raised, then they'll bump everybody up potentially too if the fund's bigger. It definitely can happen more on a firm wide basis than on like the one new associate who, who's a rock star <laughs> happened to get 130% of everything, what everyone else is getting because they really wanted him. That doesn't happen.
0: One other question. So, speaking about how so many of your candidates are coming from a shared background. And you talked about, obviously, the different characteristics of many of your candidates who are going to the equity-long short hedge funds. Within those equity-long short hedge funds, what roles are your candidates interviewing for? Are they interviewing for research? Are they interviewing for portfolio management roles? Is it only research? What's the balance?
2: Research is the majority of the roles that we place for. They're too junior, obviously, to be portfolio managers yet. Sometimes they Mm -hmm. could be, but it's got that skill set. So it's usually the research analyst role that we work with. Got it. And
0: what is the progression within these hedge funds that you are seeing in terms of years served as
2: a research analyst before they are eligible to be a portfolio manager? Or does that vary? It varies on fund performance too. As you have your fingerprints on more things that do well, obviously that dictates your ability to move up. And that kind of an approach to your progression is often much more transparent than it is in (laughs) private equity. So it's a little easier to make it, well, you did this, so you're still this. It's a much different conversation with real-time data. Got it. I think that's actually kind of nice. And people ask often for us, even like what's transparency around how bonuses are calculated and things like that, you know, and I, in private equity, generally speaking, it's super hard to answer that question. You can't tell them the formula because there really isn't necessarily one. Um, and very different. <laughs> Does your area, MD like obviously. you? Yeah. Or, or the like principal level where they're kind of deciding your compensation based on performance. You know, in quotations, Mm -hmm. it's very, very debatable and up to them to decide. Carried interest is what it is. And that's in paper contractually agreed to. And that pays out very mechanically. But other than that, you don't have a lot of visibility until that day comes. And they give you overall band ranges like they do to us when they hire us. So we're planning to pay this person 130 base with a maximum of 100% bonus, or the range is 80 to 800% bonus, or whatever they'll say to give us numbers around that. But it's not like once you get your foot in the door, you're going to start to have clarity on month six of where you're. Tracking between that eighty and one hundred percent bandwidth level, you really don't right. know. You could ask and see how how am I doing? What can I do to improve? Type of thing, but there's not a some sort of indicator out there to be able to look in and, and figure out where you stand.
1: No, that's so that's so interesting. Can we talk actually a little bit about how recruiters get engaged and how it affects their motivation? As far as how we're engaged, it's a very common
2: question, and obviously clients engage us so. The, the candidates don't pay us to represent them like a buy side right. broker for real estate would Jen. They're not hiring us and saying, go find me the job. The people who have the jobs are hiring us to say, go find us the people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the way that those contracts and those arrangements can work is a varied number of ways, contingent, exclusive, based on a success fee, all a certain percent up front, and then a certain percent at a certain stage in the process. And then the rest do it at the, at the pl- close of the process. But the candidates don't pay us. They're mm-hmm. on the site for free. So again, the best example is like in real estate, State. brokers, I guess, before the legislation that passed recently, that, you know, buy-side, sell-side I sell love side that you know all agents. about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, but it's a super interesting evolution in the industry because buy-side, sell-side brokers are very much standard in real estate and it's never been the case in, in private equity. So never- in Well, it I'm makes not, sense, not, right? Who's got yeah. the
0: deeper pockets, the candidates or the firms? <laughs> right. And I think
2: that there's like ways to, to pay, use money to get better at interviewing, like I yes. said, like training and things like that, but it's not from paying us. Right. It's also in terms of like incentives, I think incentives are very much aligned between recruiters
3: and candidates because at the end of the day, we're trying to find candidates who are going to be a great fit for our clients. And we're going to try to find candidates who want to be at those firms and stay long-term because that means that we've made a great placement. And that's when like we get excited, right? When you place the candidates and they're so
2: excited about the role, like that's a win for us. So from that stance, incentives are very much aligned. And payments align with incentive too. So don't pay us the full amount up front to hopefully find them somebody, right? We agree to a promise to pay if we do find them somebody. So that Mm. aligns incentives with the client as well. So everybody's incentives are aligned in the same regard as far as when money trades hands. Industry to industry, it varies, but our industry is certainly more commonly exclusive than contingent based. And I guess maybe we should explain the differences there. Contingent being you're not promising to work with just one party, but you're going to get paid if you place somebody. So theoretically, any recruiter who brings the right person is the person who gets paid versus mm-hmm. exclusivity is what it says, where you're agreeing to exclusively work with us. And if you hire, you're going to hire a candidate through us and you will pay us. That's the, the difference. But in finance, for the most part, exclusivity is one of the things that is common and we have some flexibility around that. I think that's one of the things that's going to probably flex in the near term, but the, the general standard is different than in real estate or in law.
1: Very interesting. Totally switching gears. One of the things that we get asked about all the time, we get messages from international students or people who live outside of the US saying, I'm not from the US. I'm interested in working in the United States. I want to go into private equity. What are some things that an international student or an international citizen, an employee who is not from the United States, what are some things that they should be aware of if they are going through the recruiting cycle? Are there visa issues? What are some things that they should have on their radar as they are going through the process and recruiting?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So it's certainly something that you need to be transparent about just because there's obviously a process to hiring individuals who are not U S citizens. So if we're looking at jobs exclusively in the U S there's just a process and there's also a risk. So just something to kind of define that risk. If you, you know, go to school in the States and then you go to an investment bank right out of school, you've been working there for a year and say, say you're from a country that's out of the States and you're on an OPT or an OPT STEM, there's an ending to when you can work in the States. And so the normal progression is for people to join the lottery process for the h1b so in like the april time frame you basically have your employer submit an application you say hey i want to work for this company i want to work in this country and then it's a lottery so basically you either get it or you don't uh, mm-hmm. and if you don't you can reapply the next year but say for instance you don't get it multiple times and then you, your opt is done then there's this i can't work in the states anymore and so there's just a risk when firms hire candidates who are in that space because if they're hiring you a for a career track role, like there is that possibility that in two years or three years, wow. you won't be authorized to work in the States anymore. And that, that question mark could potentially impact a smaller firm a lot more than a larger firm. because Especially also one that teams. has operations overseas where exactly. it might be easier for you yeah, to like get a visa. If you're originally from London, mm-hmm. then maybe you can just go to the European office and that's right. fine. Mm-hmm. But if it's a smaller shop, they don't have that ability. And mm-hmm. also from like a Transaction standpoint, like it's also expensive, right? Like you have to pay the lawyer fees, yeah. etc. And so it's just part of the equation. And some firms are able to take that risk on, and some aren't.
2: Yeah. Got it. Well, so it's also-
0: both to the firm and to the candidate that needs to be taken yeah. into consideration.
2: I also yeah, think definitely. it's helpful to say for like an OPT, every student who went to college in the U.S. obviously has an OPT given to work in the States afterwards. The STEM extension is granted to people who did science, technology, math, all those things. So a lot of the candidates do apply for OPT STEM, in which case you're good for two years. But then getting the H-1B lottery process is like a 15% chance, which is- 15%? whats is H-1B? It's for Sorry. Oh my H-1- goodness. H-1B is like a, a seven-year ability to work in the country as an international citizen. and so That's the long-term one. That's the long-term one that you get. You have to have it attached to an employer, but you can move it around from employers. But an employer has to like apply for it for you. And so the chances of a private equity client that we work with hiring somebody who does not have an H-1B, who has an OPT or an OPT STEM is generally very uncommon because the firms don't like to take on that risk if they don't have international presence to your point, Jen. Because if I hire this candidate who has OPT right right now, they're good to work here. They have it for two years. They're good. But by the time they come work for us, they're going to need to have an H-1B and they only have two chances at this lottery. So what if they don't get the H-1B, then what do we do? And so it's super unfortunate because a lot of times the advice is for candidates to hold off until you do have the H-1B on recruiting. Sure. And because you don't get a chance to dip your toe into on cycle every year, so you couldn't mm-hmm. do it this wow. year with the fingers crossed you have an H1B and then you don't get it, you have to do it the next year. It's in the best interest to wait until you have it to go through it. But again, the chances wow. of getting it are not that high. So it My is gosh. really – and then there are some firms that are big enough that they'll be willing to sponsor you through that process. Right. But it's a question we ask every one of our clients when we're launching a search is what kind of visa stance? Do you open TN visa? It's just obviously Canadians. E3 visa is Australia – H-1B is the longer term international. You can have it for up to seven years. So there's various visas that are friendlier or less friendly, Uh but engaging a lawyer is always helpful, always recommended, (laughs) but it's definitely a gating component where you need to bring that up very early in a process and make sure that you let your recruiter know that even though you might not get the answer that you want if the answer is, unfortunately, they're not considering people without a visa. We can obviously get into the political implications of that in addition to how it has ebbed and flowed over the course of the past 20 years or so. I just feel badly
1: for those candidates because they're very talented, capable candidates. No wonder we get so many questions about this.
0: Now, this is so eye-opening.
1: When we started back in like 2008, a lot of the people in my class were on H-1B visas or were applying for it. And yeah. <laughs> it, it was interesting because like year to year, it was like in 2007, I mean, the number of my analyst class that jokes that they got deported and like had to go to London or had to go to Spain or wherever it was because they didn't get the visa was quite high. And then in 2008, every single person who applied for the H-1B visa got it. But when in 2008, then there was TARP money given to Morgan Stanley. I was on the project finance desk and every single person there was international. And with the TARP money being given, the rules that were in place is that you, you couldn't have international people or something crazy. So like everyone on my team was like, oh my gosh, how do I get a green card? And so yeah. one of my one of my colleagues was like, well, if I start a business, like I, you know, it was just, it was chaos. And that's why, again, I remember Morgan Stanley was just like, please take this money back. We don't want it. Get it away. We want to keep our employees, but they're a big firm. They can sponsor that. Yeah. But again, to your point, if you're a small firm. Well, and to the point of you know,
2: the fact, H1B visa's the lottery back like in 2022, I think was closer to like 50%. And so it's Five zero. now it's 15%. Oh. Right. So So it's markedly gone down, and that just speaks to the amount of immigration that's happened in the U.S. recently.
1: Oh, got it. Interesting. Okay. Yeah.
2: So it's just a pure numbers component and it's it's very policy driven too. I mean, I I think that if you are in this position, I mean, you're probably looking at the administration and curious about how Mm -hmm. that administration might impact stance on that, Mm -hmm. but it's a very big sense. You're getting asked a lot of questions about it and it's unfortunately something that they don't have a lot of control over. And then the green card point that you also brought up is obviously the gold standard of where you want to eventually be. You want Mm -hmm. to go from an OPT, go through the lottery, get the H1B, stay on H1B, have your next company sponsor you for a green card and get the green card card that is a very long path or just get married to an american or just get married to an american yeah there you go (laughs) that's way easier (laughs) um but it's definitely always changing and so the answer we're giving today you know won't be relevant in a year type of thing but always asking getting a lawyer or asking around for your peer groups because i guarantee you're all they're all thinking about the same kind of thing you know people who are in the silver boat um, would be very very advisable
1: Wow. wow. No, that this is, is so interesting. Crazy.
2: Yeah, Very yeah.
0: fascinating. I was not anticipating Because the that risk
2: is too, is that if you hire somebody as – going through – right now I'm going to hire a Morgan Stanley f- Sponsors Analyst to come join my associate program in summer 2024. They're on an OPT STEM, so we're good. We're going to – fingers crossed that they get the lottery. They have one shot at it. So yeah. if it comes to next spring and they don't have that H-1B and we're, they're supposed to come work for us, what are we going to do? Wow. You cannot solve that problem for them. And so wow. – That's why you have to take it as one of the first gating items before you think about anything else if you're international.
1: One other thing, actually, and I don't know if this is still the case, but I do remember someone in my analyst class, he had a master's and he said that the chances of getting an H-1B visa, having a master's was far higher than just having a BA. Is that still the case?
2: I think that the more educated you are and the more of an expert you are, obviously the more specialized you are, that's what like the distinction between OPT and OPT STEM, right? They're giving mm, you credit for being yeah. more specialized in a certain space. Yeah. And so, yes.
1: So, so basically take away for any international students who want to come work in yeah. the U.S., A, STEM, yeah. and B, consider getting a, a additional degree might increase yeah. your chances. So. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and try to fall in love quickly. And yeah, fall right. in love
1: quickly. Yes, that that too. That too. Actually, my, oh, my sister in law is Canadian and joked that she married my brother because he was actually the the irony is that my brother is like I married you because you're Canadian, so now I can go get Canadian citizenship. Well, but she actually, actually,
2: my sister <laughs> married a French a, a French guy a French guy who they who moved to the states in like 2007 to work for the World Bank, and he did obviously not have citizenship. And then he went through the whole process. There was one point in the relationship before they were married because she was not about to help him in that regard early on, but they were going to maybe move move to Australia because he was about to get Mm -hmm. booted for visa reasons. But then his company sponsored him for a green card, but then he got married. So it kind of all became irrelevant, but very, very, very real. And organizations like the World Bank have flexibility to bring you here, bring Mm -hmm. you there. They're not worried about it because they're not worried about the world. They can solve it for you. But if you don't have an international presence, there's nothing you can do to solve it. And I think it's such a disservice too, because the international perspective from my brother-in-law who's from France is extremely interesting in a handful of capacities, just because you don't realize how higher education is a really easy example to make, how America's approach to higher education is so different than every other country's approach to higher education. And hearing him opine on how we spend hundreds of thousands of dollars in the four years doing a whole lot of nothing that sets us up up for our next (laughs) stage is he's like (laughs) mind blown by this. He's like, how is this a thing? And why does this exist? because in France, you're set on a path early on based on how you perform in certain tests. All these qualification exams. Exactly. By the time you're graduating from college, you are what you are. And so that's part of what motivated him to come to the U.S. is he wanted to make a career change. And it's like, well, then come here to do it because you were trained to do this in France. Mm. Yeah. I mean, what an obstacle to all these
0: companies who are trying to create real diversity and diversity of perspective and diversity of intellect to have to have this be the first gatekeeping item. Exactly. Um, So I definitely hope that that continues to shift going forward. And it's clearly something that's important to our listeners. So thank you for touching on that. Is there anything else, guys, that you think is really important for our listeners to zero in on right now when it comes to recruiting, when it comes to the process?
2: I think that my biggest takeaway, honestly, is that part of what is so great about Go Side is that we're here all the time and they can engage with the platform anytime they want to. So when they're early on and getting curious about it, it's an easier, lower stakes thing to fill out our process and kind of like get on our platform and begin to look at the tools and the resources we have and get educated in that regard than it is necessarily to take the time to go meet a recruiter and to do all those types of things. And so I think that Mm -hmm. as candidates are trying to figure out the various path they want, figure out what is... The buy side in general, what roles are interesting to me. I think Go Buy Side is a really awesome community to start to interact with that curiosity and start to try to figure out the answers to those questions, even before you dip your toe into the market to start to hire. Yeah. And that's definitely part of what we're building is to kind of help and when you're an undergrad starting to think about this, trying to get on the right list serves and get in the right loop of information is happening earlier and earlier. And I think the right. sooner you think about it, then the more conviction you'll have in the decisions you end up with. So I always encourage that. And I think that that's a shift that's definitely happening and will continue to happen. Think about it sooner and be able to engage and scratch that itch of curiosity sooner and, and go buy side is a great way to do that. Amazing. Love it.
0: Well, thank awesome. you guys so much for your time. I mean, yes. these episodes are phenomenal. This is absolutely invaluable advice for our listeners. We are so grateful for you. Of course. Um, we will relink all of the information about Go Buy Side in the show notes here. Awesome. and hopefully we can have you guys back on in the spring to talk about how spring recruiting is going and (laughs) see any new trends that are emerging with whatever the new sexy thing may be then. Yeah, exactly. And
1: for those of you who are listening, please, if you haven't already done so, leave us a written five-star review. It helps us move up in the rankings, helps more people find us. So that's really, really helpful. And we're so grateful for you and we'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to The Wall Street Skinny. We are more than just a podcast. So follow us on TikTok and Instagram at The Wall Street Skinny. If you're a visual learner, we have content that will help get you up the curve from valuation to Excel to Bond Fundamentals 101. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to our YouTube channel where we will be publishing in-depth tutorials on all this and more.